brothers as well in unity. This is a good and pleasant morning. And I'm really glad to be here from Indiana for a few days to get to, get to touch it. Um, I asked Billy a few weeks ago what I ought to uh, speak on based upon the Sunday gathering I had never attended before. And he said I should ask Matt. And so, <laughs> classic Billy, you know, this is a bird. So I asked Matt when he was up in town a couple weeks ago to meet his new nephew, Luke Matthew, my three-month-old little boy. And he said that um, it'd be really helpful to just work through a small passage of Scripture, just exegete a passage of the Bible and help us understand God's Word to us from it. And he said, also be mindful that a lot of the guys who are with us are just in that season where there's just a lot of grind. I mean, just the challenge at work is weighty and significant. They come home. And the responsibility of marriage, the responsibility of raising up young kids, it's just heavy. If there was a way to work through a passage, verse by verse, that would also allow us to get encouragement and inspiration to deal with what so many are walking through, that'd be nice. So I want to spend our time in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we're going to look mostly at verses 4 through 9, which is just the introduction that Paul has to the 16th chapter letter. But in just these, uh, these initial opening words. I think there's some powerful stuff, stuff for us. And there's two specific themes that I want to highlight, but uh, let's read the verses together, then we'll talk about those themes. First uh, Corinthians chapter 1, we're going to go from 4 to 9. Uh, Paul's writing to these believers three or four years after having been there to plant a church. He writes to them because of all the issues that have surrounded uh, the congregation recently, and he says in verse 4, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Mm. I mentioned there being two themes that are really prominent in this <clears throat> paragraph, and I think those two themes are thankfulness and Jesus. So let's begin by talking about thankfulness. Uh, it jumps out to you in the very first words, I always thank my God for you. As soon as the introduction ends in terms of I'm Paul and I'm writing to the Corinthians and God's grace to you, he begins with, with gratitude. And if you know much about you know, ancient literature, this was the standard fare. Like you're supposed to, in all letters, introduce yourself, introduce the person that you're speaking to, and then express some level of gratitude. It's called epistolography, the study of ancient letters. And this is just, I mean, Paul's rhetoric fit hand in glove with what letters were supposed to do. He introduces himself. He says, I'm speaking to you, Corinthians. But then he kind of flips the script just a little bit because it was more customary to express gratitude to the person that you're writing to. You know, thank you for hosting me when I was coming through town last year. Thank you for all the ways you have blessed me in the past. Something that's just kind of socially appropriate to, you know, butter the bread, if you will. You know, just kind of ingratiate yourself to the person by praising them for the good things they've done for you in the past. But Paul, again, he flips the script just a little bit. He, he follows the expectation of expressing gratitude, but instead of expressing gratitude to them, he expresses gratitude to God for them. And I want to touch on both of those things in regards to gratitude. I think it is 
um, a wonderful quality that you know all the men in the room, I am sure, teach your kids how to say thank you. You know, mom gives them a glass of orange juice. Thank you, mom. You know, uh, mom puts on their clothes. Thanks for dressing me, mom. You maybe uh, wipe their booty when they're learning how to use the <laughs> use the toilet for the first time. My son says thank you after I wipe his rear end. And it's good to uh, say thank you uh, to people. But sometimes when we get older, we focus on training our kids to say thank you. And we will do customary thank you. Like someone gives you a drink at Starbucks, thank you so much. You know, someone holds the door for you when you walk into Walmart, thank you so much. But I think one of the things that we can grow in as men is uh, expressing gratitude to other people for deeper things in life. Uh, just, just curious, and maybe this is really frequent in your life, but when's the last time you called up your mom and dad and just thanked them for raising you? Thanked them for 18 years plus of investment into your life? When's the last time you called up Billy or Bill or Chad or Ben and said, thank you for faithfully shepherding my soul and caring for my family in the kingdom? Thank you. <coughs> when's the last time you called up your home fellowship leader and thank them for opening their home and interceding for you and for your marriage and for your children. When's the last time you called up a good buddy and said, you know, I've got no purpose for this call. This is not about the time we're getting together later uh, this week for lunch. This is not about that trip we're hoping to take in the fall. I just want to say thank you for loving me and being faithful in my life. We, we need to grow as adults and not just teaching our kids to say thank you, and not just in a customary way saying thank you, but looking to others in the eye and saying from the bottom of my heart, I am grateful to you. But then also grow in thanking God for the people. It's great to call up mom and dad, even when we are adults, and say thank you for raising me, thank you for providing for me. How much more ought we to also say to our God, thank you for my parents. Thank you for my children, whose booties I get to wipe. Thank you for all these things. There's that gratitude to and that gratitude for. Paul is highlighting that gratitude for. And I think as we focus on that gratitude to God for people in our lives, I think that is one of the ways that we might be able to break out of some of the monotony and some of the, even the, just the malaise of the challenge of life as, as a as a husband and as a father and as an employee. And um, what I mean is we can just go through life carrying all the weight we're supposed to carry. But if we can stop in that moment and thank God for that moment and thank God for the people in that moment, uh, there's a way of kind of transcending the frustration and, and transcending the burden and the weight and meeting with the Lord dynamically in a way that is very worshipful and a way that transforms that, that, that moment. I think about um, my season of life right now. I've been married for seven and a half years. Uh, I have the, past, the privilege of being a pastor at a church in Indianapolis. I've been there for five and a half years. And I've got three uh, young children, as I mentioned. And this is by far and away, and I've told this freely to everyone, this is by far and away the most stressful, challenging season of life that I have been through. Um, but as God has been inviting me to express gratitude to him in all these different um, moments of stress and difficulty, there's been sweet moments of worship and sweet moments of intimacy with God. 
Now, one of the things you have to do as a dad is put your kids down to bed at night. And so um, some days I just will put my kids down and we'll sing a worship song or two. We'll sing the doxology. I'll have my kids quote a Bible verse and then I'll leave. But on my better days, when I put them down, I will climb into bed with my son. And I'll snuggle with him for a moment or two. And I've done this three or four times in just the last couple weeks. And I'll, I'll just re- be reviewing with my son, Hudson. He's, he's three and a half years old. I'll review the day with him. And I'll say, Hudson, I'm really proud of you. And he'll just say, why, Daddy? And I'll highlight some specific things he did that day that were commendable. How he obeyed his mother. How he shared with his sister. How he had a great attitude, even though I told him to do something that he didn't want to do, and he did it. But then another day, I might, you know, get in bed and remind him how much I love him and then say, there's some things today, Hudson, that I wasn't very pleased with. And I say, what I do, Dad? And I'll walk through areas where he could improve to maintain, you know, a God-honoring posture as a young child and also to honor our household that he's a part of. And even as I'm doing that, just a, a simple aspect of child rearing, which takes time and it takes emotional energy, I sense uh, God inviting me to thank him for the privilege of that moment. What else is the daily examiner besides to sit with your father at the end of the day and have him say, I'm really proud of you because of this and that? Or to say, you know, there's some things that we could change. Would you allow my Holy Spirit to help you tomorrow so that you don't repeat this or that? I mean, the very thing that God wants to do with us each day as a father, you get to do with your child and if you're opened up to heart of gratitude for a moment, it does require a lot. There's a way of, of it being transcended and the invitation for worship and intimacy. I, my, my, my older two share a room. And so after I, I lay down with Hudson, I'll then go to uh, my baby girl's bed. Her name is Addie. And she's got one of those small beds. It's like a crib, but it's got only like a, a partial cage, so you can kind of get in easy. And uh, I'll just lay down with her. I'll put my upper chest over her body and snuggle her. And uh, what I do, uh, again, I don't do this every night, but on the better nights, I'll say, Addie, hope I got a secret for you. And she'll get a big smile and she'll turn her ear up. And uh, I'll put my mouth right next to her ear and I say, I love you so much, little girl. And then she says, me, 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 me. She wants to tell me a secret, too. So I put my ear next to her mouth, and she says, I love you so much. Mm -hmm. Well, isn't that what God wants to do with all of us Mm -hmm. through constant intimacy? Mm -hmm. Might that be part of the groans of the Holy Spirit as we listen to our Father say, I got a secret to tell you. You are showered in my love. And isn't that the the cry of, of of every heart who's a child in God's family? I want to respond to you, Father. I love you so much, too. And there's a way of doing the things we've got to do, but doing them not just, man, i got to go put the kids down to bed. Man, I'm so exhausted. But meeting God in those moments, thanking God for those moments. And uh, you can apply that to situations beyond just parenting. But I think we can transcend the fatigue that comes and the labor that comes as we, uh, as we shift our perspective to one of gratitude. So thankfulness is one thing. And I said the second thing was Jesus. There's an unbelievable emphasis on the person of Jesus Christ. If you look not just from verses 4 through 9, but you go back a few verses from verses 1 through 9, you just look down in your Bibles that are open, the, the name Jesus Christ is used nine different times in these nine verses. And the pronoun for him is used 
two occasions. So in nine verses, 11 references to the person of Jesus Christ. It's like, Jesus, it's like, it's like Paul has become infatuated with Jesus. But this is not teenage love. This is not just youthful zeal and exuberance. This is not the honeymoon phase of Paul's life. He is a grown man in his 50s. He has been walking with the Lord for at least 15 years when he writes this letter. There's a maturity to it, but there's a, a, a Christ-centeredness that shaped the way everything happened in Paul's life. In Paul's life. If I were just kind of highlight or condense the nine things that Paul says about Jesus from verses 1 through 9, uh, Jesus is the one who called Paul to be an apostle. Jesus is the one who makes us holy. He is the one upon whose name we call. He's the giver of grace, the source of all riches, the subject of Paul's preaching, the basis of Christian hope, the climax and pinnacle of all of history, the God we experience intimate fellowship with, and he is our Lord. So in other words, it's kind of safe to say that for, uh, for Paul, Jesus was everything. And so he's going to say later on in the next chapter, uh, verse 2, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul, makes his, Paul finds a way for Jesus to be the center of almost every single sentence. And he could say with integrity, when I was with you, and it wasn't like the Thessalonians when he was there for just three to four weeks. He was there for 18 months. And he said, in a year and a half of being with you, I knew nothing besides Jesus. So I want to just ask you to stop and reflect on how central Jesus is in your worldview, how central Jesus is in your thought life, how prominent Jesus is in your speech. And I don't just mean God. I mean the person of Jesus Christ. If you were to speak nine sentences to a brother, would Jesus find his way into any of those sentences? Would he be central to everyone? Does Jesus, has he become the filter through which thoughts are evaluated? The dominant reality that shapes our understanding of right and wrong? Is he, a, is he a the authority to whom every decision is submitted? There's just something beautiful here in this passage about how encompassing Jesus has become to Paul. And um, it's not like he's just saying, Jesus, 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 but Jesus has been naturally and organically worked into everything. So those, again, those are the two things, thankfulness and Jesus. What I want to do for the rest of the time is just to just change the smallest word in that last sentence that I, I said. Instead of thankfulness and Jesus, I think the real emphasis here is being is thankfulness for Jesus. And there's, there's a past element to Paul's gratitude for Jesus, a present element to his gratitude for Jesus, and yet to be a future element to his gratitude for Jesus. So we'll just work through each of those. Gratitude for what Jesus has done in the past, what he's doing today, and what he will do tomorrow. Uh, let's look at the first, in the past. In the past, we realize that they received God's grace in Jesus Christ. They were enriched in every way in Christ. And they had the gospel confirmed among them through Christ. So that's in the past. Uh, we're talking about receiving grace, being enriched, and having the gospel confirmed among them. Again, we're just working through this verse, or, or these, uh, these verses. When they accepted Jesus Christ, God's grace uh, it came upon them like an avalanche. 
grace from heaven rushed down and surrounded them. Instead of receiving wrath and punishment for sins, they received love and mercy. They received a new identity. They were welcomed as children into God's family. They became legitimate citizens of heaven. And all of that came through the person of Jesus Christ. John chapter 1 tells us, Yet to all who did receive and to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent or of a husband's will, but born of God. Jesus allowed us access into a family that we did not have before. Uh, there's a, a couple in our home fellowship up in Indiana, and uh, they went through a great ordeal where the wife, Rebecca, had um, uh, cancer. After about a nine-month battle, she was given a clean bill of health, praise God. And right after she got to ring the bell on the oncology floor of the hospital, within the next week, they got a call from the Department of Child Services in Michigan. There were distant relatives that they didn't even know existed. Three kids, ages 5, 7, and 11, who had been shifted to seven different foster homes. No one wanted them. And so finally, just instead of just using the foster home system in Michigan, they decided to shake the family tree, see if there was any potential distant relative who might want these kids. And my friends, Caleb and Rebecca, got the phone call. Would you be interested? I mean, they already had three children of their own. The wife just finished a grueling bout of cancer. But they thought, I mean, how could we not take these kids in? They, they heard the story of uh, Chance, Caden, and Destiny. And they knew that their father was in prison for the rest of his life. You can imagine the sort of home that they must have had to have a father in prison for the rest of his life. Their mother was so um, strung out on drugs one day that she had this hallucinatory experience where she saw spiders crawling over her kids in her mind's eye. Went to Walmart, got a can of bug bomb, went into the car, opened it. You imagine being a child growing up in that home then going from house to house for weeks or months at a time and finding out you're not wanted and then being welcomed into a Christian home. Now imagine something a million times more severe in terms of a pathway to an eternity of proper punishment for your sin to being welcomed into the kingdom of heaven with a father who has loved his son for all of eternity. And we get grafted into that intimate, beautiful relationship. That is what we have been enriched in when we received grace through Jesus Christ. Um, what a profound gift. We've received his grace, and then we become enriched in every way. We did not get adopted into a family with a father who's a pauper. We have a father who has, you know, every resource in the universe. I don't know if you saw this, but a few months ago, Shaquille O'Neal, you know, NBA Hall of Famer, uh, gave a little bit of a, a talk about the conversation he had with his son. Shaq's not just, you know, NBA Hall of Famer with, you know, a couple hundred million dollars he made while playing. He's made over a half billion dollars through his time on TV since retiring, through his time, you know, being an advocate for different products. He's a pretty successful businessman. One of his uh, sons turned 10 or 11 and found out who his dad was, not just like this giant of a man, but like who his dad was. And he went up to his dad and said, Dad, are we rich? 
And Shaq said, I said, no, we ain't rich, I'm rich. We're not rich, I'm not rich. And uh, I'm sure he's just joking. He's a very jovial guy, if you've ever seen anything that he does. Jeremy used to live next to him back down in Florida. Uh, but uh, we do not have a father who says, I'm rich. That's not his heart. Everything in his family is, is, is shared with his children, with his great joy. And that comes to us, not just in general, it comes to us through the person of Jesus Christ. That happened in the past. We've received grace. We've been enriched in every way. And we realize that the gospel is confirmed among us. Now, he's speaking to the Corinthians, and the, the, the commentaries are a little bit... Um, a little bit of debate here on exactly what it means for the gospel to have been confirmed among them. Um, some people think that it's, um, it's, it's Paul referencing that miracles happened. So the gospel was preached, and then some sort of miracle took place to establish the legitimacy of the gospel. So the gospel was confirmed among them through this miracle. Amen. I don't think that... It's just a reference to regular miracles, though that is certainly possible. And again, there are a number of commentators who believe it. Um, I think that Paul is saying, you are the miracle that's been witnessed to, that has confirmed the legitimacy of the gospel. If you uh, fast forward just a few chapters and you go to uh, the middle part of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, Paul says to them, don't be deceived. The sexu- neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So in other words, most of them were just like most of us, living lives that were incredibly selfish, entirely sinful, a train wreck. And the grace of God came to us, and the truth of the gospel was confirmed by the miracle of the transformed life. And that happened through Jesus Christ in the past. So those are the things that Paul is particularly highlighting in regards to his thankfulness for Jesus from what had taken place. They received God's grace. They were enriched in every way, and the gospel was confirmed among them. But there's some things happening in the present moment through Jesus, that Paul is also thankful for. Uh, in the present moment, Paul says that they are amply supplied with gifts of grace and they live in eager expectation for the return of Christ. In terms of being amply su- supplied with, gift, with gifts of grace, uh, Paul says in verse 7, Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift. Amen. Everything that they need, God has given. And he's given not despairingly, but he's given in hyperabundance. Now, we understand what it's like to have the difference of, of plenty and want over the last few years. You know, back when I lived in town, you'd go to the store and get anything that you wanted. Then COVID hit, and uh, you couldn't always get what you wanted from the store. There's a toilet paper outage. Can't get toilet paper. Uh, there's, this was heartbreaking. There's a bacon outage. I went to Kroger four straight times and couldn't find a single package of bacon. That's not good. In recent months, I've gone, but the bacon costs $9.99, and I can't afford the bacon. Um, You know, sometimes there's baby formula shortages. Right now, you go to a car lot, and there might be a shortage on new vehicles. We know what it's like when there's plenty, what what, what it's like when when there's want. 
Uh, Paul says there is no want for any spiritual gift because of the generosity of God to us in Jesus Christ. You do not lack any gift. Whatever you need, God has made available through Jesus Christ. Whatever your body needs, God has made available through gifts in Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8, Paul says, God is able to bless you abundantly. Listen to this. So that at all times, in all ways, having all that you need, you will be able to abound in every good work. That's what Christ does for us, gives us every gift we could possibly need. So that happens in the, mo- in the present moment. He's presently supplying everything that we could want or need or want appropriately and then need. And then uh, this second element of what's happening in the present moment, we live in eager expectation for the return of Jesus Christ, which is a, a way of saying that right now, one of the gifts that God gives us in Jesus is the ability to anticipate his return, to live in expectation of his revelation. Now, again, we know what it's like uh, to be excited for key moments. Uh, some of you younger men are excited for school to start up. and You're pumped to get to hang out with your friends and uh, start that, uh, that learning experience again. Within eight months, you'll be excited for the last day of school. Some of us are excited because we're starting a new job. Some of us are excited because we're getting ready to retire. Some people are excited because they're getting ready to have their, their, uh, their wedding. Some are excited because they're getting ready to welcome the birth of their first child. There's so many things we go through life anticipating. But Paul says that right now we, we ought to, at the greatest level, live in eager expectation for Jesus Christ to be revealed. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Mm. We know in that moment that, uh, that, that world, the world right now, which is broken, will finally be made right. We know that every wrong and injustice will be settled. We know that every area where there is a wound, there will be healing, and we, we look forward to that day. But we also look forward to that day with the mission that comes with it. You know, Jesus tells that story in Matthew chapter 24 about a master who goes away and leaves a servant in charge. You know, right now, when we go away, we go away for eight or nine hours. If you're taking a business trip, it might be, what, three days, four days, five days at most? Think about what travel was like in that ancient world. You get on a ship, it might take you 21 days to get to the place you're going. You do business there for a month, you come back. It's, it's a three-month journey. It's a four, five-month journey. You really left someone in charge, and because they didn't have cell phones, and even the letters, the mailing system wasn't quite what we've experienced today, the servants didn't know when the master's coming back. And that person in charge doesn't know when the master's returning. So... They had to live every single day in preparation that the master might come home. And Jesus said, how good will it be for the master or for the servant whose master finds him doing what he commissioned him to do? And yet how much punishment will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for those who thought he's going to come a few days later. It's going to be a few more weeks. I can focus on my own agenda, not the task that I've been entrusted with. God has entrusted us with tasks. And 
It is a great gift to live in the eager expectation of the imminent return of Christ. We're not waiting for some geopolitical thing. We're not waiting for a certain president to get elected or for Russia to do something. Any day now, the Lord can return. And we live in eager expectation of the revelation of Jesus Christ today. And that sets the stage for that which we are thankful for Jesus about a future event. This is the third element. In the future, we will be blameless on the day of Christ. When Jesus returns, we do not have to struggle with insecurity. We don't have to wrestle with condemnation and the fear of shame because of the price that Jesus has paid for us. And uh, sometimes, especially once we get maybe a little bit older in our faith and we've walked with the Lord for years or for decades, we can... um, we can kind of have too, uh, too flowery of a view of ourselves. I think we are probably all in need of a good reminder of our carnal nature and who we are apart from God's grace. Uh, I don't know about skeletons in your closet or secrets in your life, but I know on my own I am absolutely doomed. I know what my, my mouth can, can speak not guided by the Holy Spirit. I know um, people I have hurt, relationships I have not honored. And on my own, I have no hope. But thank God I'm not on my own. And when Jesus Christ is revealed, I can know with certainty I'll be blameless on that day because of what the Bible tells me. (laughs) Through the power of the gospel, through the person of Jesus Christ, he comes and uh, Jesus imparts his righteousness to cover over my sins. The Bible says that um, I'll actually be given a white robe indicating the purity of Christ, not man's purity, his purity. The Bible tells me that even though my, my sins are as scarlet one day, by God's grace, they'll be as white as snow. The Bible tells me that no matter what book my name might be written in here on earth, no matter how many mistakes might be cataloged, here on this side of heaven, you know, my name is ultimately written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And having confidence in that will shape your present reality. Uh, many of you guys sadly followed, I'm not saying you followed this closely, but you're aware that in the news and in the media, Johnny Depp and Amber Heard were having a big spousal dispute last month. Uh, Johnny Depp you know, Pirates of the Caribbean actor, he's a big wig, and he married another actress, Amber Heard, and they didn't have the most pleasant of all marriages. After they divorced, Amber Heard wrote this letter talking about what it's like to be a victim of abuse. And then uh, Johnny Depp lost some, uh, he lost some opportunities to film movies that were gonna make him tens of millions of dollars. And so Johnny Depp decided to sue his ex-wife for 50 mil. Amber, thinking that this was unjust, decided to countersue her ex-husband for 100 mil and stick it to him. And the real shame was what took place for six weeks in the courtroom, where they, with their lawyers, just threw every possible dirt imaginable at their ex. But the world was kind of hanging on the verdict. And so were the two of them. After six weeks of of trial, there was a three-day wait period where the jury went to discuss what they were going to do. I want you to try to imagine what it would be like 
to be either Amber Heard or Johnny Depp in that scenario. You've just made your case. Someone else has made their case. And you're waiting to figure out who's going to be vindicated in the the eyes of society and who's going to seem culpable. You're waiting to figure out who's going to have enough money to live comfortably for the rest of their life and who might end up going bankrupt based upon the verdict. Imagine how tenuous and stress-filled those three days must have been. By God's grace, you never have to, for a single second, live with uncertainty of what the verdict may be for you. But it's not because there ain't mud to sling your way. (laughs) It's not because you are innocent. It is because the blood of Jesus Christ has covered over your sins. We have countless reasons for which to be thankful. And specifically to be thankful for Jesus. So my simple encouragement, grow in gratitude. Express your gratitude to others and express your gratitude more consistently to God for others. Make sure that Jesus is absolutely central in your worldview and your thinking, in your conversation. Make sure that he reigns supreme as you relate to others, as you interact with in your home. But of all the things you can be thankful for, and as important as it is to put Jesus first, make sure that there is constantly gratitude for Jesus, for things he has done in the past, things he's doing today, and things we know he will do That's what I got.